Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. I was so upset. And then my friend came out and like freaked out because he's like, wait, I'm so sorry I had to go through that because he didn't know. And then I was like, no, it's fine. But like the whole time we're in town and they were just so confused as to why I was hanging around with a blonde kid. Like I, everyone's face was just like fused. And we even when we went hiking, we got like weird looks. But, you know, I don't really let it get to me. <laughs> I just kind of ignore it and keep it going because, you know, life is short. That is Stephen, who we will chat with later in the podcast. You'll love the discussion. It's about travelling as a coloured person. And that will include Albania, which, Phil, is the focus of this destination episode. I know. I'm so excited about this one. Uh, Albania on the southeastern European side on the Balkan Peninsula. It's a very small country with uh, Adriatic and Ionian coastlines. And uh, the interior is crossed by the Albanian Alps, which makes for great hiking. It also has tons of castles and lots of historical and archaeological sites. You got that word out, okay? Archaeological. <laughs> we'll look at hiking in Albania, as you mentioned in this episode. We'll learn it's a country, too, that still very much appeals to the backpacker and probably now is a very good time to visit before everyone discovers it. And we're not helping there. <laughs> no, we're not. I know. I thought that. I thought that. But let's start, as we do, with your quiz question. All right. Uh, which airport, Kim, is the world's busiest? I'm measuring by Passenger numbers here, not air traffic. Passenger numbers. Which is the world's busiest air- airport? Okay. I'll let you know at the end of the podcast. Ash Bardwaj is a travel writer and filmmaker, among many, many things. He makes videos too for World Nomads. And in this chat, Ash shares with us a story involving Ed Reeves, who is an Englishman who'd visited Albania to research a World War II special operations executive mission. Uh, given uh, Ash's connections to the military and a love of walking in the mountains, he planned a trip with Ed to retrace the uh, British route of those troops. So, Ash, what is your connection to the military? <laughs> So I'm not in the regular army. I'm in the British Army Reserve, which is kind of the part-time army. And I nearly joined the regular army when I left university. I was finishing my degree. I did a degree in philosophy, which makes me professionally unemployable. And I was looking for something to do. And I did one of those uh, career assessment tests and it popped up with the army. So I nearly joined the army at the age of 21. Um, But I, in fact went straight to do a ski season in France and then to go to Australia to become a jackaroo. So I went off to Australia to be a jackaroo uh, and then I went to New Zealand to be a cowboy. Uh, I, sorry, I went to Australia to be a jackaroo and then I went to New Zealand to be a ski instructor. I played rugby in New Zealand and uh, trained as a ski instructor. And then through that, I was just enjoying myself far too much um, and went back to ski instruct in Europe and then moved into video production and journalism and writing. Uh, I just had far too much fun to join the regular army. So I eventually joined the Army Reserve at the age of 31, which is quite an old age to be joining the army. When I moved to New Zealand, that was certainly when I started to try and explore the outdoors more. That was one of the things I intended to do there. And the, In fact, the very first time I went into the outdoors, I was utterly unprepared. I got some boots and some kit and uh, headed up towards the Southern Alps, out towards the uh, aspiring range and had a very miserable night out on my own uh, when I realised I didn't have proper navigational skills but could follow a path. Uh, so that was my first experience out there. I turned around and came back, not particularly rugged. Um, but through then going off to do things 
things in the army. You basically spend most of your time in miserable wet woodblocks in southern or indeed northern England uh, and learning how to carry heavy things on your back. That's mostly what you do. So you sort of develop some of the skills that become quite useful for when you go and do expeditions. And I think the most useful skill that you learn in the army is the is the ability to hang on through what you do in all of your elements of training. You do various bits and pieces that teach you that when you think you're about to give up, you can certainly keep on going. Awesome. But what about Albania? Well, all of my journeys and all of my expeditions have been rooted in, in trying to get a better sense of history. I think it's very easy to go travelling and just go, well, this place is great, there's cool beaches here, this was really nice, or, or indeed going off and Instagramming various places around the world. But I've always enjoyed going off in search of a story, and that certainly fits in very well with the point I was making earlier about it not always being fun. I think part of your journey needs to be going off in search and having that sense of endeavour. I was very lucky. I spent quite a bit of time going on expeditions with my friend who's a British explorer called Leveson Wood. We did some big expeditions in Africa and Central America, um, Southeast Asia, sorry, South Central Asia, so the Himalayas, uh, and the Caucasus. And all of his journeys were long-distance journeys with a sense of trying to uncover stuff along the way. And similarly for me, what I did with the Albania trip was I discovered this story about this British secret operations executive mission to Albania that happened in 1943. So what happened was after Italy had surrendered to the Allies, the Germans realised that Albania, which had previously been under Italian control, was quite a useful place. So the Germans went in there, took over Albania, and the the British realised that if they could interfere with German operations in Albania, they could tie up a lot of uh, German military forces, they could reduce the flow of arms and people down to reinforce the German occupation of Greece, which the British were also trying to get back, and would also distract the Germans from fighting in, in Northern Europe. And so these very plucky blokes had been conducting secret missions trying to find allies in Albania and trying to get them to fight the Germans. Um, but then the Germans had figured out that they were there and got in search of them. And these, this bloke in particular, one guy called uh, Trotsky Davies, he was a brigadier in charge of the whole operation, spent the best part of three months throughout winter running away from the Germans and hiding in various various villages and towns and I thought well this is an amazing journey that nobody really knows about in Britain if you think about our war narrative it's about northern France it's about uh, Singapore it's about the uh, Kohima and uh, the Indian border fighting into Burma uh, and then D-Day and then going through that way but there's not really much about what they were doing in the Balkans so I thought this was interesting just because it it was interesting to me as a as a soldier, and it was interesting to me as a story. And Albania is one of these places that you hear about, and you you don't really know much about it. You like, what what is Albania? What does it mean to you? What is the story of Albania? So I thought I could do, I could explore the two things together, tr- retrace the story, have a bit of an adventure walking around in the mountains, but also learn a bit about Albania. So that was really the the genesis of that story. So if you want to ask me my impressions of Albania, I have a girlfriend who is. Turkish Albanian, and that makes for a very fiery combination. Oh, I would certainly say the Albanians are are fiery people, and one of the 
great. They're, they're lovely, though. You know, I didn't have a problem with any Albanians when I travelled there. I found them incredibly hospitable people. I found Albania to be a lovely country. And Tehran is a very charming city. And the mountains are stunning. The hospitality and uh, generosity I encountered in Albania was lovely. Um, the time I spent there was just magic. It really was lovely. When you read Trotsky Davies' book about his time he eventually did get captured by the germans the uh, the brigadier that was out there for the british i mean he talks about how difficult it was to get the albanians to do anything the albanians believed that there were four great allies in the fight against the nazis the americans the british the soviet union and the great nation of albania which you know every nation has its as its war narrative and you don't want to demean a nation for the sacrifices they make in war Strategically, Albania wasn't contributing a huge amount to the war effort, but they still expected the same level. Uh, they, they kind of wanted to be at the same table as Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill. Well, let's get to some of the content that you do make for World Nomads. And I recently watched your video where you were on the Russian border. Yes, in Estonia. So, well, the whole trip was part of a journey down the Russian border. So in November 20, uh, sorry, not November, in September 2017, I went to Estonia with the British Army Reserve. It was part of a deployment called which is basically a reaction to the changing security environment in Europe and a, uh, I guess, a more boisterous Russia. And I became really curious about why this had happened. I became curious about why is there tension? What is going on on the Russian border? Why does Russia feel that it has the right to Crimea? Or why does it feel that it? Why are people concerned that they may have have uh, aspirations to take back parts of Estonia. So, you know, there were these there were these questions in my mind about what is identity nationalism, what's going on along this border. So I set about this project to travel the entire length of the Russian border with Europe. So I started all the way up in the top of Norway, in the Arctic Circle, where where Norway touches Russia. Norway actually goes around the top of Finland and touches Russia right up in the Arctic, beyond the Arctic Circle. And uh, I travelled all the way down through Finland into Russia by St. Petersburg, then Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kaliningrad, which is this other bit of Russia, then through Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, Transnistria, which is this fascinating little sliver of land between Ukraine and Moldova, into Moldova, then back to Ukraine and eventually down to Crimea. So the Russian border was the... It was kind of my eternal shadow companion on this journey. It was the thing that I was there for, or the, the reason for this whole journey. And in Estonia, there's this fascinating place called Setomar. So what happened was Estonia was occupied by the Soviet Union in 1939, and uh, the Germans took it for a bit of the war, and then the Soviet Union took it again. And um, lots of Russians moved into Estonia during that time. And then when the Soviet Union ended... There's a patch of Estonia that got taken into, into Russia. What that meant was this region that was ethnically distinct within Estonia called Setomar was cut in half. And the people that lived in Setomar were suddenly cut off from half of the land. They had a choice. Do you move to Estonia or do you move to, to Russia? And that was the story that I went there for. And then there was the video on the reindeer herder. Oh, yeah. And Anna Luisa. Yeah, she's absolutely great, isn't she? Ash, as you were wrapping up, you said that she gave you a lot to think about, and I really wondered what you actually meant by that. Well, I think, you know, she... For her, she has a deep connection to the land and to those animals in particular. It's part of her heritage. 
Her grandmother, she talks about repeatedly, was clearly an extremely influential person in her life. And it was her grandmother that gave her her first reindeer, gave her the reindeer mark, taught her how to be a reindeer herder. So for her, you know, being a reindeer herder is not just a job, it's this connection with this identity that goes back and this identity of who she is as a person, this connection to to herself and her heritage and her family and the things that matter to her. So I think when we, you know, when you think about work, so many jobs that we have in the world and so many of the things that we do are quite meaningless. You, you think if this job, if my job disappeared, would anybody really care? And you think, does my job really matter to me a huge amount? So, you know, work is something we have to deal with and we have to do, but does it connect with our soul and does it matter to the world? For Anna Luisa, her work connects her to the environment. It's physical. It's something that gives her a real sense of mortality as well because she's very aware of the fact that these animals die. She has to slaughter them. She cares for some. So it gives her a real sense of understanding the reality of of life. Um, But also it has this deep personal thing for her as well as the fact that it's a very tangible job. You know, the reindeer would not survive or people would not eat meat or they would not get reindeer fur if she did not do her job. So I just got a really strong sense of the importance of what you do and how you pass your time. And then that's, that's very much the vocational aspect of it. And then the being in the wilderness, the, the way she talks about the work and how hard it is and how... From one season to the next, things can change. If they have a very hot um, hot spell, then they can't get the reindeer to the pastures they need them to. Or, or the snow melts and then it freezes over and then they can't get to the moss underneath. And all of that just made me realise how disconnected I am from nature in what I do. So, you know, it's, it's approaching winter here in England, but I can turn the, turn the heating on. Uh, and, you know, if... If there's a cyclone somewhere in the world, it doesn't matter. I can still go and get my my fruit and veg from the supermarket, or I can still go and get my chicken. You know, I'm so disconnected from the reality of things. And, you know, my work, I, I love my storytelling, and I love finding ways of sharing these ideas, but it's quite different to the, the tangible reality of the work she does. And just like that, Ash has given us a lot to think about. Links to those videos he created for World Nomads in show notes. Now, Christina Tunner is the head of the Americas for World Nomads. She's been a guest on the podcast previously, Phil, a few times now. A couple of times, yes. Yep. But we have her back this time for a fireside chat about Albania. Thanks, guys. Great to be back. You'll be getting your own show soon. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> Three times now. Let's talk it. to my agent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Albania, tell us about it. What did you? What prompted you to go there as a destination? You know, it actually sort of stems off of one of the podcasts that we had uh, back in the day. But you know, ages ago, I was in Albania, and it was around overtourism, um, and that was a real motivation for wanting to have a holiday somewhere where we could get to the great outdoors, do some amazing hiking and not really run into the crowds. So we sort of ran through the big list of places that we wanted to go. And I just thought, you know what, let's go to Albania. No one seems to be going there. Getting there was a bit 
funky in that from the states it became really spendy whether you flew into athens or connected in frankfurt or wherever it might be it just became really expensive so we decided to fly into rome which at the time we had a really good deal on the ticket and we basically overlanded our way into the ferry over from um i think on the way over we took it from barry yep. to uh the coastal port town of duress from there we basically took a cab <laughs> We took a cab and, you know, it sort of turns out like there is a railway system, but most of the overlanding around Albania was through buses. But when I managed to find a website that had some of the bus timetables, our arrival time from the ferry would not really be conducive to an elegant, seamless connection up to where we were heading towards, uh, which was a city called Skoder. Um, it wasn't a lot of great connections up there to go up there. So I overheard these two backpackers on the ferry talking about where they were heading. I heard that they were going to the same town. I asked them how they were going, and they basically said, we don't know. So we bandied together, found where the bus station was, where there was also a cab rank, and we shared a cab for about an hour and a half, and it was 30 euros. So this is a place that's really getting off the beaten track. That We're back to... You know, good old days of travel here, Christina. Yeah, it re- yeah, it really, really is. It harkened back to my early backpacking days, which is um, <clears throat> decades ago. Um, <laughs> but and that was that actually does prompt another main reasons for why we decided to go was because it was just absolutely chock up with history from the Crusaders and the Byzantines and the Serbs and the Ottomans, and you sort of fast forward to the modern times and the 20th century history of. Balkan Wars, Serbian attacks, Italian occupation, you know, communist era. It was just a real nice um, tapestry of all kinds of influences, both historically, architecturally, and culinary. And that was a real attraction. And so the fact that it was really soon after the wars was uh, sort of an appeal. But why aren't people going there? I think I think it's just because it's just not really written about. It's not a place. There's other places that are trumping uh, popularity. And I think that you know, that whole, there is a trail of people who sort of do the Northern Greek, Macedonia, Montenegro trail. And I think that that's going to be uh, a really, really up and coming hotspot for the budget traveler as well as uh, backpacker. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, the poorest country in Europe or the poorest country in the region for a very long time. I know that's changed in the last five years or so, but it has been you know, underdeveloped for a very long time. Yeah, it has. And I think the fact that getting around, for example, there isn't a very good train system that has lots of connections and lots of times. It's very much a bus overland um, uh, country would sort of speak to that fact that it's, it's, you know, most people, the the, the transport of the people is buses. Um, And so that tends to be very cheap and slow and clackety. The roads aren't very good. So I don't know if that really lends to itself to the fact that there isn't much infrastructure um, investment on infrastructure. So all those things, I think, sort of culminate to point to a place that is is still a bit, you know, tough backpacking or tough travel. You yeah. sold it. Totally. It sounds fantastic. It does. It is. It, it's totally slow travel, guys. I mean, don't be in a rush to get anywhere. Don't do, you know, if it's Tuesday, it must be Tirana. Um, you know, take your time because it will take you time. You mentioned so, as part of that... It. Sorry, as part of that tapestry, you you talked about the, um, the culinary offerings. What what is the the food like in Albania? Um, very mixed. So obviously, on the coastals, you'll get a lot of the you know fantastic seafood. 
Um, and also inland too. I mean, it's it, it's not a big country, so you know, fresh fish does make its way into the interior. Um, so, you know, but a lot of um, olive oil and vegetable dishes. Um, very Middle Eastern uh, type of fare, a nice crossover there of, of some of those foods. Uh, put it this way, vegetarians can eat there quite comfortably because my better half is a vegetarian and he ate quite well. <laughs> nice. Bit of baba ganoush. Little, little baba ganoush. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I, tell me about the people. Obviously, you know, it's not over-touristed. Uh, hopefully they haven't got jaded by all that now. So what were the people like? Oh, the people were so lovely and warm. You know, obviously we don't speak the language. Um, you know, later in the trip, we realized that oh, there's vestiges of Italian. So you know, I could have rustled that up earlier in the trip. Um, so that does help. But you know, in the shops, uh, you know, a lot of pointing, a lot of smiles. Uh, public transportation. People were super, super lovely and sort of helping us navigate some of the older, windy roads and towns and hills where we needed to take maybe a certain bus, but we had no idea what bus to take but you know women would sort of say come with me come with me and they you know sort of pass us on to other people taking the same routes that we needed to get to and pointing to our little lodge up in some upper hill that we never would have found otherwise uh, you know it was interesting when Mustafa and I were there because he's he was raised um Muslim being being uh, Iranian and because of the heavy um Islamic influence in the Albanian history in modern day uh, Albanian life it was kind of interesting to have people recognize him as a fellow haji, if you will. Um, and that kind of opened up some very interesting doors and some very interesting um, warmth and and connection with the locals. So that was really quite lovely. Sure. Uh, but not sort of prescriptive Islam? It was pretty open? Oh, my gosh, very open. It was gobsmacking to see, uh, you know, the beautiful central mosque in Shkodr as well as uh, Tirana and, and, you know, the other towns that we visited. And yet at the same time, and I took many photos of this juxtaposition of women with you know, short skirts and sort of very elegant or very modern, walking in front of a mosque or a cathedral quite openly without any sense that I could pick up uh, of, of pressure or tension around um, that type of, of you know, modern versus uh, more conservative religious life. Okay, I think we're going to have to add another one to the list there, Kim. I think Albania's on my list now as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, definitely go. I mean, it's just, you know, UNESCO sites, um, really cheap, cheap, cheap to get around. Uh, and I have to say, the one thing, if you are at all inclined to hike, is to uh, take the ferry up the, um, from Skodra to Coleman Ferry, which is this amazing alleyway canyon of a lake that stretches up. It's a four-hour ferry ride, and you get dumped off at the end of the jetty with nothing else. A van picks you up, and it drops you off at this town called Valbone. And from there, that's where the road ends. And Mustafa and I backpacked literally with our back, our, our packs on our back nine hours over the Accursed Mountains, over the summit, and dropped down into this village called Tet. And that's, that's, that's a journey and experience that a lot of people are doing. We saw people, um, you know, more people on that mountain pass than anywhere else, really. But that was magic. Yeah, thanks, Christina. Definitely sold us. Yep. Phil, what's travel news? Okay, less than a week after being named as the hottest destination of 2019, Sri Lanka has been beset by political turmoil and violent protests. The Prime Minister has been sacked and a former hardline president installed. This has led to protests and sadly a shooting in which uh, several people were killed. Expect more protests in Colombo and Kandy. Um, shouldn't really affect your visit to the rest of the country or even to those cities, but... 
please stay away from any public gatherings that you see or protests or rallies because they are just too unpredictable. Such a shame. And a recent podcast too, which just yeah. uh, uncovered what a, a beautiful spot it is. Yeah, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to affect you too much. Just, I mean, those things usually happen outside Parliament buildings. Yeah. And outside. Just stay away from those places. Go and enjoy the rest of the country. Uh, wild storms have lashed Europe, causing damage and quite a lot of uh, travel disruptions. Venice was hit particularly hard because the rain combined with uh, some strong winds coming off the lagoon and an unusually high tide. So the joint is flooded. It, it's Which actually is you ironic. Know, <laughs> they put those duckboards down to you know so you can walk around when it's flooded. But the water's gone even higher than that. It's like um, you know, almost record levels of flooding in the place. And what it'd be funny if it wasn't so serious because there are these amazing pictures of people. Um, sitting in restaurants wearing Wellington boots up to, you know, their mid-calves, still being served with pasta and pizza and what have you. Life must go on. It must go on. Um, the same storm system that hit southern Europe brought snow in uh, to France's massive central um, uh, mountain range. A thousand people got stranded in their vehicles overnight. That would be pretty <laughs> uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Cold, very cold. Uh, and I believe there was also a train in Italy uh, trying to get out of Genoa that couldn't because the tracks were blocked so people had to sp- spend the night on the train. The Orient Express. Oh, I wonder if there's a murder. <laughs> uh, and gale force wind, winds also hammered the Adriatic coast of Croatia, so maybe Albania copped a little bit of, of that as well. Yeah. Look, speaking of storms, this is a very stormy travel news segment, isn't it? <laughs> it is. uh, winter storms have hit the US too. Uh, time to put those snow tyres on, folks. But let's head somewhere warmer now. Boracay in the Philippines has reopened. The island resort was closed down by the government after the uh, Philippines president declared it a cesspool, and it literally was, uh, due to overcrowding and poor infrastructure. Raw sewage was going straight into the Ooh. water, that sort of stuff. Anyway, six months uh, of cleanup has happened, and it's been reopened to the tourists. Uh, under new rules, visitors, uh, there's only going to be allowed 6,000 a day, and they're going to be asked to sign a pledge before they step on to the island to follow all the new rules, including disposing of your waste properly, um, a ban on liquor, smoking and bonfires, parties on the beach and to act more responsibly. I don't mind that. That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, finally, what is expected to become the world's biggest airport has opened. The new Istanbul airport is very sleek and modern covers 19,000 acres, that's 76 square kilometres, and it will handle 90 million passengers a year in the initial stage. (laughs) But that number is planned to rise to over 200 million passengers. Now, it's going to overtake the airfield that I have asked you about in the quiz the world's busiest airport. Ah. It will become the world's busiest airport, taking over from... We won't. Yeah, nope, find out until the end of the episode. Well, Phil, in previous podcasts, the World Nomads podcasts, we've touched on lots of topics, travelling with children, travelling solo, travelling with a disability. But what about travelling when you're a person of colour? And I come back to your favourite travel quote from Mark Twain. Yep, my favourite one, yeah. Travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness. Yep. Well, what happens, though, if that is your reality? Stephen Brown reached out to us to have a chat about that topic specifically, travelling as a coloured person. Look, is that the right term? Even now I'm worried about how I should phrase it. Um, A lot of people say travelling while black, travelling while African-American. Like, 
both terms work interchangeably. All right, can I put my hand up straight away and say I'm one eighth Spanish? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I do have a splash of something, and there there are um, rumours among the family that it could be of an indigenous nature. But I've read a couple of articles in the last twenty four hours, and and I've read quite a few from um, Muslims that travel, and they get quite jittery, particularly the women if they're wearing hijabs. They're coming into security checkpoints. They suffer anxiety. I, I can get that. But as as an African-American or as a black person, what prejudice do you come, come across? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know, traveling is pretty good, but some things I've heard that you will laugh. Uh, I've been asked if I knew how to rap. Um, <laughs> people automatically assumed I knew how to rap. <laughs> uh, well, hang on a minute. Do, do you? you? <laughs> and if you do, give us one now. <laughs> I can't rap. Um, I'm awful at it. So I'm just like, no, but I listen to rap music. <laughs> That's funny. So I guess the next question is, can you dance? What are your moves? See, right, I can't even dance. So I'm like the not stereotypical African-American that can't dance to rap. But I can talk a lot and traveling's pretty cool and <laughs> I know how to have fun. Hey, do, are there some places that you go to um, – that are worse for you than other places? Where, I, I mean, do, I, yeah, are, are places different? Yeah, so what's funny about traveling while black is the most prejudice I received was in my own country, in the United States. Um, I can say a story. When I went to the Midwest to visit one of my good friends in uh, Minnesota, uh, you know, we were hanging out, and since he grew up there, he didn't realize, like, oh, like, because there's a lack of diversity, how the people would react towards me. And when I went, I just went to see where he grew up, and there was this little town uh, that's, like, a little bit three hours outside of Minneapolis. And I remember going in, and this was, like, a year and a half ago, and I walked into the supermarket because he had to go to the bathroom, and people were literally following me. I couldn't, like, look around without people watching me. I noticed the camera following me, like, everywhere I went down the aisles. And I just bought something just so they can, like, get off my back. And literally when I tried to pay for it, all the registers spontaneously closed at the same time. And the only one was from another African-American that was working at the supermarket, who then proceeds to tell me that the manager told everyone to be on alert for you because you walked in. And it's oh, like, my God. So total distrust yeah. based on the color of your skin. It, yes, it, exactly. And I was so upset. And then my friend came out and, like, freaked out because he's like, wait, I'm so sorry I had to go through that because he didn't know. And then I was like, no, it's fine. But, like, the whole time we were in town and they were just so confused as to why I was hanging around with a blonde kid. Like, I, everyone's face was just, like, confused. And we even when we went hiking, we got, like, weird looks. But, you know, I don't really let it get to me. Um, <laughs> I just kind of ignore it and keep it going because, you know, life is short. But it's just things like that. And that was like a year and a half ago. So it wasn't even like long. So that's redneck mentality, basically. Yes. <laughs> so I've also read, I think it was last year, in Greece, of all places, there was a racially motivated um, bashing of an African-American tourist. Have you ever been amongst anything like that or know of your mates that have? Uh, I haven't personally, and I lived in the Mediterranean for seven months in Cyprus, which is next to Greece, and I was actually treated, like, really well. I didn't experience anything. Um, it was all positivity, especially from the Greek people. Um, 
And yeah, my experience has been good, but I don't know anyone who has specifically. My next question was going to be other places where, you know, you don't notice the prejudice, but that's just normal, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> like you wouldn't go, oh, this is be. good. Yeah. It's normal. But <laughs> well, yeah, there was a country specifically. Last year, I went to Lithuania. And uh, when I went there, because a few of my friends that I met when I lived in Europe lived there, so I decided to visit. And one of my friends, you know, said the N word, and they didn't know it was bad. And at first, I was a little upset, but then I realized, you know, the country is like basically 99.9% white, so I can't assume that they would know. And it caused us to have like a conversation. And we all spent about four or five hours, and I was literally explaining in detail, like, why the word is bad, the history and everything like that. And within like a conversation with me and like seven Lithuanians, you know, they understood. And then from then on, you know, they were telling their friends and their friends were telling their friends. And because of that, like easy conversation about it, you know, they know never to say it, the history behind it and why it's important to know about like prejudice against like African-Americans and what we go through. There are countries too where people haven't seen a black person. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have a lot of experience with that. Um, so I, when I basically anywhere in Eastern Europe, um, a country specifically, as I can remember, is going back to Lithuania again. Uh, last year I did Lithuania, Latvia, Finland, and Austria at the same time. And now I was in the Baltics. Um, I still remember like going out and my friend picked me up from the airport and we just hung out at a bar and like, Everyone just was like looking and staring and like they honestly were like freaking out. This one person, Brandy, ran up to me to hug me. Um, I had like a lot of free drinks that people bought me <laughs> at the bars. And literally when I went to this one, like my friend was like, hey, we should go to this hip hop bar just to see how they would react. Because <laughs> they didn't expect the black person to go to a hip hop bar. And I, yeah. I walked in and like everyone's faces dropped and they, they either thought I was famous or just someone, but they just ran over. And I still remember this one guy like freaking out saying, oh my God, like I love Tupac. Like Tupac's my favorite. <laughs> Pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, he told me that. And then, like, he gave me this big hug. And I'm like, okay, cool. So <laughs> I'm going back to find my friends. And um, we go out to the balcony. And, like, everyone's just surrounding me, asking me questions, like, where I'm from. Like, have I been in New York? Because foreigners love New York for some odd reason. And, like, they just were, like, so into it. And then when we went to one bar, you know, we bar hopped. And the more bars we went to, the more people tagged along. And, like, all day, it was either I got random high fives on the street, people like <laughs> apologizing for like, you know, certain things that their people say or like just a lot of people like flirting and hitting on me. That happened a lot, too. Um, but it was just it was a great experience. You know, some people be overwhelmed, but like I ended up getting so much free stuff, free food. <laughs> free like, you know what? This is this is pretty amazing. All I right. can. I get used to it. <laughs> but look, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of an entire community or anything like that. But do you think, um, you know, this sort of racism that people encounter actually prevents African Americans from wanting to travel outside of America? I think so. Cause I, so I've been to 18 countries, but I just started traveling three years ago. And before I even left the country, you know, all I knew was what I heard on the media or what I researched online. You know, there's just certain countries that automatically African-Americans are like no to, which is, you know, Russia and Ukraine and like those type of countries. And I feel as though like there's just a stereotype place that if we go there, it's not going to be a good time. You're going to be treated badly. 
But, you know, when I first got to college, I had that mentality and I kind of wanted to change that because I got introduced to so many different cultures. And ever since I like stepped foot on my first plane to Cyprus and chose the most random country out of them all to explore, you know, that kind of changed. And I feel like, you know, by me going and showing, you know, my blogs, my videos and my posts, I'm inspiring other people to be like, okay, this is not that bad and I can do this, you know. Because you just can't go based off of what you hear. You have to go experience it for yourself and then you can determine if it's good. Phil, to all people of colour or any minorities in general that think that travel is either inaccessible or they'll be judged, don't let that be held against you. Get out there and enjoy. Yeah, right. Uh, that was a fantastic chat with Stephen. Wasn't really, it? Yeah, love him. Great bloke. Uh, look, if you're wondering about travel to Albania as a uh, coloured person, there are plenty of forums and blogs available discussing this topic for pretty much every country. Uh, but one uh, woman asked her black African friend who lives in Albania's capital the question recently and was told her uh, mate has never experienced any form of racism in Albania in the five years or so that she's been there and she... Uh, feel safer there than when she lived in Sweden. Great to hear. Um, Tim Neville is a freelance writer for the New York Times, the Financial Times. In fact, we'll cut it off there because he writes for many, many publications, okay. including World Nomads, and he's written an article for us on Albania. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I've um, Googled you and Albania. You just type in Tim Neville, Albania. Um, It's been a country that you've been pretty fond of for several years now. I have, yes. I I sort of stumbled into the place and immediately realized I needed to head back and uh, have continued to do that over the, the past, oof, maybe seven years or so now, I guess. I think the thing that captivated me the most about the country was how little people really know about the place. They have sort of these stereotypical notions of the place, I guess. Uh, and then you actually go there and you realize how wrong a lot of those those thoughts are, uh, how beautiful the place is, how incredibly friendly the place is. And the thing that's most surprising about this is that it's Europe. So it sort of feels like Europe, like the signs look European. Um, you know, the Italy, you can literally see Italy, across the Adriatic at night, uh, and yet it feels so different from anything in Europe that I've ever, ever experienced. Seven years, that's a long time, Tim. place must have changed in that time, though. For sure, yeah. And that's the other thing that's so exciting about uh, Albania is that it has this, this crackle about it. You can go into cities or go into villages and feel the changes happening. It feels incredibly dynamic. You know, I think every place in the world is going through changes of course you know place no place really ever stays the same but something about albania just uh really you can just feel this energy um yeah things are completely changing i think you know the first time i went you know the country's not that small so or not that large i'm sorry so it's pretty easy to get around uh but i think some of the, the biggest changes you're seeing are along the coast you know, the first time I went there, even then I was, you know, pretty late to the game in terms of, in terms of how, how the, the, how much change is happening. But when on that first trip compared to like the last trip, you can see a lot of development happening along the coast and you got to kind of wonder if they're going to keep it, keep it under control, if it's going to get out from under them. And sadly, there's a, there's a good argument to be made that it's getting out from under them. Fortunately, at the same time, you can also highlight several attempts uh some really cool cool things happening to try to try to maintain what's special 
about about the country. They're coming off a low base, though, mate. They were one of the poorest countries in the region for a while. So you can kind of understand why when the tourism money turns up that they're going to grab it with both hands, really. Yeah, you can't really blame them. Of course not. You know, it, it'd be... I don't know what it'd be like. It'd be like if I'd lived all my life on a dollar a day, then all of a sudden somebody's offering me a million bucks. Well, of course I'm going to take the million bucks. You know, if someone were to hand me a million bucks, I guess one of the reasons why I might have second thoughts about it if I were Albanian is because they have something there that, that no other European country has that, that at least I'm aware of. And that is because they were so poor and because they had this incredibly harsh dictatorship for so long, nobody in or out for many, many years. In a way, they're a little bit like a time capsule. They're a little bit like what the Adriatic coast used to be like before, before everything happened, let's say. So it's, you have these pockets along the coast that, that are just like Italy, let's say, or just like Greece, but without the development where it's this naturally beautiful place. And so, I mean, what's that worth? So those are the sorts of things that they're wrestling with. It's what makes it so exciting for a traveller right now. At the start of the podcast, we mentioned that it appears to be undiscovered and both Phil and I felt pretty guilty that we're sharing it with the rest of the world. That it's still undiscovered? I would say that that the word is definitely out about Albania. Um, it's funny, I have, I've had several people write me kind of out of the blue just saying, hey, we're thinking of going to Albania. What can you tell us? Whereas before... Uh, you know, I don't think, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it, so it's hard to, to gauge something like that, but, but you can tell that there's, that they're definitely, um, welcoming more tourists. You see more things, more travelers, you see, uh, more services for them. It's still very, very much undiscovered or so. And as far as like feeling guilty about that, um, I can understand that, of course, at the same time. From the Albanian perspective, they're super excited to have people come visit them. And in, in a way, they can't... One of the most surprising things that I've seen over the years there is, is how they can't quite really believe that people want to come see them. <laughs> so there's still sort of this novelty aspect where you show up and they're, they're, they're sort of like, wait, you're, you're traveling around Albania? But I mean, you know, Greece is right there, right? And Croatia is right there and Italy's right there. You're coming to you're coming to my country, so they have sort of this little bit of surprise in some way. But they are incredibly, incredibly um, hospitable and thankful, and just unbelievably um, welcoming. Let's say it's very hard to buy your own meal there. Sometimes I can't, I, without a doubt, you you sit down in a little seaside restaurant, and somebody's going to buy you a drink. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's incredibly friendly. So, you know, in terms of, you know, whether you should feel guilty about getting the word out there or not, um, I think Albanians themselves would argue quite, quite, uh, quite stringently with you on that. You know, you see obviously Turkish influences, the Turks were there for 500 years. So that that's embedded itself in everything from the cuisine to the architecture. Then you have that communist era and unlike a lot of places uh in in sort of ex-communist europe you know the albanians have have been a little bit slower let's say to rid themselves of some of of some of that um you know some of those uh landmarks and statues and so you could still you still get a, a kind of a good feel for uh what the place looked like then of course it's you know everything's been painted and um you know 
things are a lot of statues have of course come down but you still get a good a good feeling that you know what what it was like uh under those days I, of course it's very 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 different very different so i'm not trying to suggest that it's still like that by any means um but it is it is it is very eye-opening let's say that, that nostalgia for those sort of you know soviet symbols it's it's like they're really cool now but Jesus, we hated them at the time, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, and so that's yeah, and that's something also that's really interesting is that is that there are no real Soviet symbols. Like the Albanians were their own thing, which makes them really interesting, in my opinion. Wow. They broke ties with the Soviets. They broke ties with the Chinese. You know, they of course courted both for a long time, but then they also broke ties with them. They hated the Yugoslavia uh, regime. So. Albania was it's, it's you know in one of my stories I called it the North Korea of Europe and and I don't think that's an exaggeration nobody was allowed in nobody was allowed out it was very tightly controlled you could be arrested for wearing shorts in a city because that was too bourgeois you had just you know just that weird super oppressive um, uh, government for a long long time and so when you go around you see sort of this Albanian, this Hoja, as that, you know, the dictator um, who, who, who ruled over the, the place for many, many years. I was named Enver Hoja. And, and so there was this Hoja brand of communism, which was very Stalin-esque and very dark and and not a happy place at all. So you have to, it, it, there is a little bit of a dark tourism element happening, um, you know, that you can see. But what's, what's, super fun and interesting for me and something that's that you know has led me to write about the place over and over again is that you see these clashes between you know those dark days and and this incredibly bright future and and not clashes but but those you know where those two are rubbing up again up against each other and all the interesting things that that kind of burble up when that when that happens um, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating thanks tim and that wraps up albania and another on the list phil of places to visit i know uh yeah just yeah i just bank went, balance yeah <laughs> yeah this list is getting ridiculously isn't long it, by the way isn't it getting long go. okay the answer to your I, quiz question quiz question okay. a bit. all right yeah, yeah, yeah i had two goes at this one for you already the world's busiest airport airport is um hartsfield jackson in atlanta um, okay. More than 100 million passengers go through there uh, every year. And why? Well, it's kind of like a central hub for uh, for all of America. And according to the airport itself, 80% of the population in the US is within two hours of the airport. That's so it's insane. like a really major sort of hub that goes through there. It, that's ins- I, I can't deal with that amount of people. Yeah. I, well, wait until Istanbul gets going. <laughs> Seriously, 200 million people a year going through an airport. All I can do is laugh. I know. Do you, I, what if you, I wonder if you've got to be able to find a seat. Oh, that's you know, when you that's the kind of thing flight. that goes through my head, yeah, or the loo. You can download the episodes from iTunes or the Google Podcast app or ask Alexa and Google Home to play the World Nomads podcast. Uh, next week, Polar Exhibition Leader Lauren Farmer in another of our Amazing Nomads episodes. Awesome. See you then. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.